missing connection to science night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and I'm all alone for this intro because we have a very special episode for you this week. A few weeks ago, Jason, Steffi, and I converged on Indianapolis, Indiana to do a panel at Gen Con presented by our very good friends over at Indiana Sciences. And tonight, we have some of the audio from that event. So, without further ado, enjoy our second of three Gen Con specials, The Science of Science Fiction, presented by Indiana Sciences. All right, is this thing on? The Science of Science Fiction is something that Indiana Sciences has been doing for a few years at Gen Con in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. It's split over two nights, and they have two separate panels of people talking about the science behind their favorite sci-fi franchises and fantasy games. And we were lucky enough to be night one, Thursday evening, and we had a packed house. It was a lot of fun. Jason, Steffi, and I took over the Indiana Sciences stage, and we talked about two of my very favorite games, Mass Effect and Fallout. The audio I'm going to play for you right now is mostly from the Fallout portion of that event, because we got something cooking with our Mass Effect special coming up in November. So please stay tuned for that in the future. So... Here we have audio from the Science of Science Fiction Night 1, the Science Night Takeover, and we're talking about Fallout. So, welcome everybody. Uh, I'm James, and I'm one of the co-hosts of the Science Night Podcast. Unfortunately, I didn't realize we weren't getting paid for tonight, so we're going to end this now, unfortunately. Um, so, we're a science communication podcast. I am an anatomist and a podcaster, and I all do a dabbling of science communication on the side. And I'm going to let my other two co-hosts introduce themselves. So, first we have Steffi. Hi, I'm Steffi Deem. I'm a professor in plasma physics and fusion energy. Who's heard of plasmas? Who's heard of ionized gas? Who knows they're the same thing? We should all use plasmas. It's a fourth state of matter. Yes? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I also do dog agility on the side, and I knit. <laughs> yeah. So what's your dog name? Um, my dogs are named Starbuck, Anara, Battlestar, Alpha Prime, and Danger Boat. <laughs> so and, the nerd uh, creds are established. <laughs> and uh, I'm Jason Ogan, and I'm not nearly as cool as Steffi. I'm a professor of anatomy here at uh, Indiana University, the School of Medicine. Um, so yes, my name's Oregon, and I'm a professor of anatomy. It's true, and if you have a good joke, I would love to hear it. But if I've heard it before, it's not going to be a good one, so make it a good one. Um, I study bone and muscle and why they look the way they do from an evolutionary perspective. So I got my start as an evolutionary biologist. Um, I'm really into live music and uh, fencing, so not as cool as Danger Boat. <laughs> nice to meet everyone. Thanks for coming to Indy. 
Yeah. Hey, hey, James from the future is dropping back in on this recording from the Science and Science Fiction Night 1 presented by Indiana Sciences. And you're probably thinking, that was just the intro. Why are you cutting it off already? It's because I want to let you know, you're not going to get the full audio from this night or from Night 2 to hear everything and all the amazing jokes that we said you're gonna have to go to the indiana sciences youtube page and check out the full audio and video from both nights of the science of science fiction at gen con so go to the indiana sciences youtube page check out their website indianasciences.org and now i'm gonna send you back to past james to talk about fallout we're going to move into the second game we're covering tonight, which is Fallout. Luckily, there is no real-world implications to what happened at the very beginning of this series to allow for like global thermonuclear war that kind of destroyed civilization as they knew it. It's it's very different. You know, there was resource shortages and there was global tensions and there was the consolidation of powers. But they didn't invent the transistor until way later than us. So it's different. It's a different thing altogether. But what they did have is this very sci-fi thing called fusion energy. There's a company called General Atomics. And a subsidiary of that, or like a kind of breakaway from that, is, is a company called Mass Fusion. They worked in fusion reactors. They created and miniaturized this very small fusion device called a fusion core, which if you played like the later Fallout games, you know is like the thing you never have when you need it. And now you're just like <laughs> not in your power armor and a death claw is death clawing you. That's, that's a different rant about a different thing. But I do want to like talk about like that's that's a sci-fi thing, fusion energy. That's what, 50 years oh, from now, no. forever. I I right. get that so <laughs> it's much. Only 30 years away. It's 30 years oh, now it went from 50 to 30. Oh, that's good. We're yeah, moving well, closer. I mean, <laughs> deep time. It still doesn't mean right. anything to me. Exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah. I actually threw my housewarming party that was Fallout themed because at the time I worked at General Atomics. That's actually a real company in San Diego and I worked at their fusion reactor there. So it was actually pretty perfect. Um, I actually had many tiny themed bottles and then we had a vault opening party instead of a housewarming party and then I handmade a pinata that was actually a bot fly that had many bobbleheads inside of it. Yes. And then I had bobbleheads in my house and then people were collecting bottle caps. Yep. Okay, right. Yes, that was my party. Right. Okay. That story is so, way better this time than the last time I heard you talk about it because you didn't give all that detail. I know. I was saving it I for tonight. I appreciate that. That was very good. That was excellent. So let's let's talk about something that's less horrific than global thermonuclear war. Um, just some light, um, you know, horrific experiments. This is, for, for anyone who's played the games, uh, the Mariposa military uh, facility. It is run at this point in its history by something called, well, in this point in its history, it's run by a bunch of super mutants. But... Before the bombs fell, it was run by something called West Tech. And they were trying to find a way to create a super soldier of sorts. So think like they were really trying to 
thread the needle and somehow create Steve Rogers. But what they really created was a series of monstrosities. Let's just say what they are. In the bottom corner, we have the super mutants. These are the humans that were uh, affected by the forced evolutionary virus. Up here, we have a nice vat of FEV, or forced evolutionary virus. When you expose humans, you get super mutants. When you expose... This is, this is bad, but they say dogs and then other animals. I think that's the important component is the other animals. You get these fun thing called centaurs. I wasn't going to add them, but my friend Chris demanded that I do, and he does a lot of our audio mastering, so I want to keep him happy. <laughs> and then my favorite thing, the death claw, which is when you expose a Jackson's chameleon to FEV. So this adorable little chameleon that you can see on Animal Planet and you can watch... Uh, Sir David Attenborough talk about it and, and have like a really calming thing will eventually become a death claw. Uh, the thing that went wrong is all of this forced evolutionary virus was exposed to massive amounts of radiation. Um, so, you know, not a great thing. There's nothing wrong with radiation in moderate amounts. Moderate amounts. Mm -hmm. See, I, I I said massive. Like, there you go. <laughs> like right. massive amounts of radiation. So all things in moderation, including radiation exposure. Oh, that's a great question. That is a great question. Thank I you wish so I much. Asked that question. Thank okay, you. so the question was, if we prove that we can produce more energy out than we put in for fusion, and it's commercially viable, do we see one large fusion power plant or small distributed power plants? So, thank you so much. I want to step back really quickly and highlight how why I love fusion so much as a clean energy source. Hydrogen can be found in water. Um, fuel equivalency, um, I mentioned deuterium, tritium. If you take the amount of deuterium in a 1.5 bathtubs full of water um, and you use the lithium in five laptop batteries to breed the tritium, that's enough to power your energy needs for your entire life. That's amazing. There's no greenhouse gases compared to burning coal. You'd have to burn 280 tons of coal, and you get 380 tons of pollution. So that's why I love fusion so much. Distributed versus very small plants. So that is a great question, because we're actually looking at commercializing it right now and doing a demonstration. There's actually a White House push to, to build a fusion pilot plant within a decade because we've gotten so far in the technology. And so part of this drive to build this fusion pilot plant that can demonstrate electricity generation is looking at the market needs. So talking to communities and seeing, are we going to go with gigawatt power plants that we're using right now or smaller power plants, maybe 500 megawatts? So it looks like it's going to be talking to the grid and seeing what, what they want. And it's going more towards the smaller end of maybe 500 megawatts, something like that. But um, there's a company, so what's really making it possible right now is high temperature superconducting magnets, which can make them more compact. So there's a couple of companies that are specifically looking at the compactness of doing that. Yeah. Please give another huge round of applause for the Science Night folks. 
that was so much fun. Thank you to everybody who came and saw us live. Thank you for all the questions that came up. And thank you to everyone who hung out with us for a little bit after the event. We had so much fun meeting everybody. In just a minute, we're going to bring you some audio from night two. But first, a message from a group that I think you want to support. We had so much fun going to Gen Con, and I'm really excited that we've been able to put these three episodes together for you to listen to and for us to meet some new people and play some fun games and just enjoy ourselves at Gen Con. And we could not have done this without the invitation from Indiana Sciences. So we want to thank them by telling you to go and support them. Go to indianasciences.org and especially go to indianasciences.org slash merch, buy some merchandise, and make sure that they're able to provide amazing science communication events well into the future. If you go to indianasciences.org, you're going to find out everything they're doing, including ways where you can see the entire audio and video from both nights of the science of science fiction at Gen Con and so much more really fun stuff, including my favorite series on their YouTube channel, Books, Brain, Brains, and Booze. So check that out at indianasciences.org. And now back to the science of science fiction at Gen Con presented by Indiana Sciences. We are back with night two of the science of science fiction presented by Indiana Sciences. In this portion, you're going to hear three great science communicators, starting off with friend of the show and the guy that always makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable with the things that are living around you and interacting with your microbiome. Of course, it is Bill Sullivan. The second presenter is Matt Sowers, who I'm hoping you hear a lot more of on this show and maybe some fun things happening in the future. In this panel, he talked about a fantasy trap that he thought up with using real-world physics. Who knew you could do something crazy like that? And then we round off the night with Indiana Science's own Rufus Cochran talking to us about artificial intelligence in a manner that is in no way settling or creating an existential crisis. The most exciting thing is I got to talk to these guys before they went on stage. So let's go to the pre-show and then we'll take you right into night two of the science of science fiction presented by Indiana Sciences. And remember, you're only hearing clips of this night, so if you want to see the whole thing, go to indianasciences.org and follow the links to their YouTube page. I'm here before the Friday night version of the Science of Science Fiction, presented by Indiana Sciences. And I just happen to have Indiana Sciences right here. We have Rufus and Rachel. What are we looking for in tonight's, tonight's event? Well, tonight we have a really exciting event because we have local author and brilliant mind control talk by Dr. Bill Sullivan from the IU School of Medicine. 
And then we have Matt Sowers, a holding dozens of patents across industries in mechanical design, talking about the physics behind D&D tracks. And then you have me doing a talk I don't do a ton, but I'm really excited to do on AI and artificial intelligence in science fiction. Oh, and that's so, yeah. really exciting. There might even be the opportunity for some interplay between our topics from Mass Effect from last night yes. and artificial intelligence. I'm not, I'm not saying there's a lot of artificial <laughs> intelligence in that or anything. And Rachel, Rufus is kind of up there doing things on stage, and you're like actually making sure the stuff happens in the background. So what are checking wristbands? Checking wristbands. Making making sure people are vaxxed. That's right. Handing out flyers to sell merch so that we can keep paying to do this event each year. And where can people find that merch so that this event keeps happening? Indianasciences.org slash merch. There we go. I love a slash merch. So we talked to Rufus and Rachel. We also have friend of the show, famed author eventually. Bill Sullivan here. (laughs) Bill, our listeners are very comfortable with hearing your voice. You're a very popular guest. What are you going to be talking about tonight? Well, I'm just going to wow the audience with my vocal talents. Like that. I like we've done the vocal warm-ups. We're ready to go. The tones are very dulcet, so that's really exciting. Tonight, I think we are going to explore some of the science fiction and horror films that everybody loves and put a little science behind them. Try to see if there's any real-world examples for some of our favorite monster legends or sci-fi storylines. I love it. If you listen to our Halloween special, you probably might be a little familiar with what we're talking about. If you haven't listened to it, why not go back and check out the Halloween Spectacular from 2021. What other events does Indiana Sciences do? So conventions, um, we also do Indie PopCon. We have a talk there uh, that we usually do on like the history of science and how the history of fiction travels along through time with it and really influences, you know, as we have new advances in technology and understanding of the universe, the fiction reflects that as we go through history from the scientific revolution to to the present day. Um, We also do Starbase Indie, which is a Star Trek convention, um, and we do Drink with a Scientist there, which is uh, we start their night called Bar Fleet off where they, they have different drinks throughout the, uh, the convention. But we have a bunch of scientific experts that will answer any questions that people have. You just sit down, have a beer, ask a scientist anything. It's an AMA at a bar at a Star Trek convention, so you literally can't go wrong. It's, uh, it's the easiest thing to sit up in the world, and it's the most fun to do. Uh, the other type of programming we do, so we, um, we have a book club called Books, Booze, and Brains, and every month we meet at a local brewery and we read a book that has a science undertone, and then we get a scientific expert from the community uh, to come and talk about the science and lead that discussion at a local bar. That's a really fun event. Um, and we also do the City Nature Challenge, one of our few events that don't involve alcohol. But uh, you can interject alcohol if you want, because the whole idea is you travel throughout the city, and with the app on your phone, iNaturalist, you document the urban wildlife. Um, and that goes into a large database that's shared with government, non-government, uh, all different types of organizations that can track 
you know, the invasive species, endangered species, the baseline level of the biodiversity in the city as a real citizen science event that's a lot of fun to do. It, uh, it's fun walking outside and just getting to play in the woods for a whole weekend and it contribute to science. It's a, it's a really fun event. So. That's all really exciting. Where can people learn more about Indiana Sciences? So all your favorite social media sites at Indiana Sciences. Or you can go to our website, indianasciences.org. There we go. And if you go ahead and add slash merch, you can make sure that Indiana Sciences is able to keep doing things long into the future. We're here with Matt Sowers. Matt, what are you going to be talking about tonight? Tonight, I'm going to actually present a trap. So uh, there's physics that lives out there, and that's what makes almost all the traps and things like fantasy gaming go on. So having an understanding of the physics of the world uh, can help you make uh, more believable traps. Uh, part of that, of course, is still inserting it into the story correctly, so I will be talking about some of the gaming aspects as well because, uh, well, we're surrounded by gamers. So uh, what I'd like to do is spend a little bit of time talking about the physics of it and then a little bit of time talking about the gaming aspects of it and hopefully a little bit of an interactive thing and see if uh, we can get some volunteers from the crowd to help us out. So I love that. I've heard an online version of this talk before, so I'm excited to see what the in-person version is like. So. Oh, it's a di- wholly different trap. Uh, totally different so, trap yeah, yeah. entirely. Okay. That way, if there's repeat customers, they get the full value of the price of the event. That's right. We're, we're <laughs> doing nothing but giving the optimal del- uh, dollar for your free ticket to That's get right. into the That's right. I have doubled the, the value of that. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to hear it. Thanks. Now here's a brand new one. This is brand new cutting edge science. It just The story just came out like, I don't know, I think I posted it on Twitter two or three weeks ago. And it freaks me out because I'm just waiting for someone to make a movie on this one. And actually... This guy is freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot to freak me out. I've seen a lot of bizarre stuff uh, in my line of research. But we're talking now about a fungal organism that infects ordinary house flies. So what happens is this, this, these fungal spores get into a female fly, and they grow to consume the body. And they release a sticky substance so that when the fly gets tired and lands on a surface, maybe a wall or window, it sticks there, it stays there. The next thing this fungus does, it starts to release chemicals. It releases chemicals, these molecules look just like the pheromones that the female would normally release. Now, mind you, this, this female fly is now dead, but the fungus is releasing these chemicals. And it's attracting all the male flies who then come and mate with this dead female stuck on a window or wall. And in the process of doing that, picks up fungal spores, which then, when he mates with the next fly, a living one presumably, uh, spreads those fungal spores to the female and the life cycle repeats itself. So I don't know if they can talk Jeff Goldblum into remaking the fly um, to engage in uh, necrophilia, but... uh, that was one of the wildest behavioral manipulation stories I've seen come along in some time. Another one of my favorites, uh, a, a film that when I saw as a kid had me watching the skies with great paranoia. I'm sure many of you have seen it, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. So how many of you know that was based on a true story? 
So a couple people, most people think you know, such a crazy story, it can't possibly be true. No doubt it's embellished and exaggerated, but it is based on a true incident that occurred in 1961 in California where seagulls just suddenly went crazy and were flying into cars and homes as if something was really wrong. So Alfred Hitchcock took that little news story and really ran with it and made a classic film. It took decades for scientists to figure out what was going on here, not because they're daft, but because it doesn't happen very often. But in 2011, a paper was published that explained what happened with these seagulls way back in 1961. It turns out they were suffering from brain damage from a rare toxic algal bloom that had occurred in the bodies of water um, in that area at that particular year. Had a very strange weather uh, patterns for that year. So it was this brain damage from a toxic algal bloom, uh, basically a chemical was what they were ingesting, that caused them to um, emulate these very bizarre behaviors, which uh, is something we see in other films. You know, certain chemicals are ingested um, and they make a person do things they normally wouldn't do. To set things up, I'd like to at least give you an example of a recent trap that I uh, nearly tried to inflict upon layers. Yeah, this is like, yeah, that's probably like too much to, you know, it's not. <laughs> but, but there's the picture anyway. So the idea here is that I gave my players an environment and it was like path of light, path of like dimness, neutrality, whatever, and path of darkness, which one do you want to go? Like absolutely path of light, that's the way we're going and that's the way they went. So they did a different thing. They didn't get to do this. Today, we're going to take the path of darkness because this is most enticing. So, <laughs> so that means uh, this uh, had a potential reward for actually giving you a plus two on your charisma on your character if you successfully navigate this trap. The other penalty is you probably die in a fire. So uh, with that in mind, that's the, uh, the, the bait that's on the end. They don't know that there's a benefit, but they get the idea that this path of darkness is filled with power and, you know, treasure. <laughs> so that's like a thing. So uh, I'm going to need some volunteers. I'll get to that in a moment uh, because I'm going to need people who may or may not have played a role-playing game before to give me some input. So you go through. So you go through a door to find a pitch black room. <laughs> uh, light seems to be absorbed in the coarse lava stone. The floor is a polished black obsidian that uh, 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 that uh, reflects oddly. It's an uneven sort of a glass lava flow that's frozen. Uh, toward the walls uh, gives way to some rough volcanic stone whose sharp and strong points would abrade anything. Uh, the air smells of a coal fire. Uh, you note that the smell gets a bit stronger as you press forward, but it is never seeming to be uh, kind of overwhelming, just a faint and present scent. The air seems slightly warmer here, again, rising a bit as you move forward, but only a few degrees. The rough and meandering hall is hard to follow, taking a spiraling and uh, gentle incline and a lazy corkscrew. After perhaps one full orbit of some 500 feet of walking, the dull reflection and the sound of your voice's problems, letting you know you're in a much larger vault. The air is warmest here, smells most of coal, uh, but again, uh, 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 these are still just not more than notable. Uh, your eyes find nothing but blackness. So we'll stay on this slide for a second here. All right. Who's my thief that's going to walk forward and take a look? Do I have one? Anyone? 
Volunteer, I have a seat here in the front row. So you're going to walk forward and take a look, perhaps? Yes, can I roll insight? Absolutely. Well, your insight helps with people, but you can definitely roll perception. So your perception roll is actually pretty good. Uh, you go ahead and uh, yes, click on the next slide. Oh, the animation's stuck. Okay, so you feel the floor change as you pitch uh, forward, ever so slightly, but increasing. Your light sources can be seen in a mirror image on the floor, warped through some haze in the middle of the room, but the reflections die out to the center of the room, showing a horizon line with the light. It looks like it might be some sort of massive funnel that you can observe walking around it. It fills the room. So as you walk around the room, you note the floor feels slippery. Your fingers tell you it's coated in a series of waxes here. It seems freshly maintained. The light, tropical smells dwell on your fingers after you touch it. It's hard to tell from here, but you believe the center of the pit is at least 20 feet across. There are no other exits from this room. Do I have an intrepid adventurer who'd like to suggest an idea about what they'd like to do? Run headlong at the pit. Run headlong at the pit? <laughs> have another idea yet? Yeah. I was going to suggest if there was something not too valuable, throwing it to see what happens. Absolutely. Yeah. You throw a copper piece into there and it just kind of rolls around like the thing at the children's museum for a minute and then it goes down the hole and it's gone. But you hear some tingling faint. So it's going somewhere. It's not like it's some bottomless pit of nothingness. Okay. The barbarian I heard wanted to run headlong into it. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is have that barbarian make a dexterity check. <laughs> so let's go ahead and go to the next slide because we were running low on time. So, um, so down our barbarian goes. You feel the floor change pitch and you suddenly get to the point where it suddenly feels very slippery and you feel it seems to be waxed and polished. You progress forward until it pitches suddenly and the next step steeper than you thought. So now you've got to make a DC, in that case it was DC 15, to not fall down on the flattened part. But since you've run headlong into it, we're just going straight into the middle of this thing. So now you've got to make this DC 20 deck save. Or you're going to slide forward into this tube. It's about 15 feet across, point straight down, and you plummet down into whatever you'd like to put down there. So in my particular case, I had this nice 500-foot-long path that you spiraled up be about 40 feet. So you drop down from the top of the funnel that you saw before, down about 40 feet to the top of the room next. And the next room is a tall cylinder that if you had chosen the middle path, you'd be walking down around this big spiral around an 80-foot diameter cylindrical room, wondering why the hell I'm walking down a ramp 120 feet. And there's this big coal pit at the bottom. Mm. Now, those who took the path of light are already down here because they hopped on a slide and the stone slide just took them the same path around the outside and it was all lit and there was like music and fairy dust and stuff and it was great, but they didn't really gain anything other than safely making it to the bottom where these other folks learned a very valuable lesson. So, I wrote um, to the barbarian. Right? <laughs> So I think your party is minus one barbarian. But if they made it, then they're going to have to take 2d6 fire damage each turn inside that coal bed. Those of you familiar with fire damage may recognize that sort of thing. Uh, also, falling damage uh, roughly about, uh, in this case, I set it for about 120 feet. So you're talking about on the order of about 12d6 damage. So um, to the physics part of it then is the funnel doesn't reflect the light, even the stuff from across, because the optics of it and the glassiness of it don't let you see directly from a light source. So if somebody walks across the pit, you don't see in the middle of it. And with your torch in your own hand, you don't see in the middle of it. So just with the physics of the universe, I've actually hidden the problem. 
but you can see it, smell it, and feel it. Now, it was all part of this trial gamut thing, so I had some reason to put that in the environment, as I mentioned before, but there are some chances that they can get out of this, and the way that I've done that is I know how long it takes to fall. So if the human rate of acceleration or any object falling on in this gravitational field is about 32 feet per second squared, that means I fall about 30 feet in the first second, I fall about 60 feet in the second second, and I fall, would fall 120 feet in the third second if there wasn't a bed of coals there. So what that tells me is I've got about two seconds, maybe three. That's not a full action in the game of Dungeons and Dragons. That's really like six seconds long. That would be like action plus movement plus other stuff. That's really on the fence for a DM, but I'd absolutely let bonus action stuff happen like Step of the Wind from the Monk. They could possibly kick off the cylinder sideways, use that Step of the Wind to get them going. Obviously, for our wizard in the party, they're going to use their Misty Step uh, or Feather Fall, which is, of course, a reaction to just gently fall into a pit of coals and then only take the burning damage when you get to the bottom. So, so this is how you can integrate that stuff. So let's go to our last slide here. Um, yep, one more. Yep, there we are. So to review this stuff, again, after you reviewed that, uh, those rules, I kept this simple. It's a trap that is just a hole in the ground, and you fall and you take falling damage. That's the magic behind it. I'm using gravity and position. I used your position to hide where it was going from you, but you still smelled the coals burning. I still gave you your other senses, and that is what you want to do as a good DM is to uh, enable your players to not just win, but you want to give them the agency to make a decision. Presenting them with three doors at random is not giving them agency. That random choice is equal to no choice. So you give them information that gives them the stuff with this. I've considered the upkeep and maintenance for this trap, the fact somebody's got to wax this. I actually know who does it. I have a list of people whose job is to take care of this whole like puzzle dungeon that they were in. There's freaking gnomes, aka Oompa Loompas, that are basically taking care of the place, you know? So I have the plans for the material disposal. Those coals are banked and banked regularly to keep them going. It's not magic coals, they're just coals. And then uh, the reason for the trap relevant to the story was the players knew that they would be tested this way. They knew that there was this was part of their puzzle dungeon. The big dude at the front who was like, hey, you know, you make it through my you know crazy funhouse of good times, you get experience points and treasure and you live. Um, if you don't make it out, then you die and you become part of the crew and we'll reanimate your body and use you as part of our you know organization here or whatever. But you know that's like part of the puzzle dungeon. So they had a purpose for being there. So I think with something even as simple as just, I got a pit trap, it doesn't have to be a 10-foot box in the floor or randomly in the middle of a dungeon. It can be placed environmentally. It can have a story. It can have its reason for being. It can have all of these things. And you're, I didn't do anything more than just grease a funnel and stick it in a dungeon. So that's not crazy. So this is stuff you can do too, but it's simple physics that you already know. You are born with and use all the physics that you need to do everything on a daily basis. Roll that into your uh, gaming. Make sure that you uh, take full advantage of, of what you are and what you do and uh, make sure that you have a lot of opportunities for your players to test their own creativity and give them room to do so. Thanks. What I want to hop in here real quick is um, in the early days of AI, Right? Here are the comments by people. Uh, within 10 years, we will be able to beat anybody in chess in the 50s. Uh, within 20 years, we'll do everything that a human can do. That would have been the 80s, if you saw how that went. Uh, and within a generation, you know, we'll at every problem we can solve it, right? If that, if those look like a lot of the clickbait titles that you see today related to AI, 
just think about that temper, what you hear from people in the news about that, right? Because uh, we had our first AI winner in the 70s, research funding found, uh, like, really uh, got dried up because they were trying to do so many things. And what I want to touch on here in the top, right, this is really just want to mention in your head, Tesla's theorem, look him up, Google him, AI is whatever hasn't been done yet. Artificial <laughs> intelligence is a very like uh, consultant buzzword, get up for management to pay for things. What most people are talking about when we talk about artificial intelligence is machine learning, which are a lot of uh, what I like to call the non-sexy tools of mathematics, mainly regression, classification, a lot of statistical tools that we've had for a long time. Um, we just haven't had the computational power and speed or the data to really pull them together and make decisions on them very quickly, right? Um, a bunch of different types of learning. We're going to focus on one really quick. The diamond of math is what science fiction, uh, sorry, is what uh, AI is based on. Like I said, statistics, calculus, linear energy. Uh, this is a lot of stuff about logistic progression. But 60 seconds, what I want to walk through here is if you want to train a neural network, right? So we're looking at all these different types of um, supervised and unsupervised learning. What does this mean to you, right? Think about a cat. A, a cat comes in and it sees a thing flickering on the table and it's, it's red, yellow, it's flickering around. Cat comes up to it, super hot, burns its whisker, it's got to run, right? It remembers that that red flickering thing is fire. The next time it comes to something like that, it remembers that pattern, and every time after that, things that look similar to that, it will remember that pattern. Machine learning, especially supervised learning, is all about seeing a pattern and the things that make that pattern memorable, and then putting it in a system where you can now interact with different things and understand what they are as well, are not, are or are not following the same pattern. Right? So when we look and we say, hey, you know, are we going to be able to solve all the world's problems, right? There's a lot of good Star Trek episodes. Uh, we gave uh, AI citizenship in Saudi Arabia in 2017, so that ship's already flown. We have a hologram doctor uh, in 2021, Chappie. Um, and this is the last thing I'm going to stop on. Uh, the Google engineer that claimed the AI was sentient. Um, it was not. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so, and what I'm going to do to kind of show you real quickly what that was all about, right? So there was a, uh, a, a experiment in uh, psychology called ELISA, where a robot, a uh, computer system in the 60s, basically just parroted back simple questions to people. And people found they had a strong impact on um, the, uh, their psychology, and it had a measurable impact by just repeating simple questions back to people. And what the ELISA um, uh, phenomenon is referred to when we look at is anthropomorphizing systems that can communicate with us. And so they're not like sentient, right? We just see in them, the same way that we love our dogs and they're great, like our, our cats, right? We anthropomorphize them and put humanity into them very quickly, right? Psychohistory is already kind of real. You have come to the end of another special episode of the Science Night Podcast. We have another special coming your way, so it is not the end of Gen Con stuff. 
be sure to follow us on social media so you don't miss anything that we're doing if you want to follow me and why wouldn't you my name is james and you can find me at james underscore read three on twitter if you want to follow the podcast go to at science night one and make sure to check out our website scinight.com for links to all of our past episodes the things that we talk about and the people that we talk to and of course our merch that is all at cyanite.com and also if you want to see the full video from both of these nights you gotta go to indiana sciences we're gonna link it on our website but you can also go to indianasciences.org and make sure you're following them on all of their social media Thank you again to Rufus and Rachel at Indiana Sciences. We had so much fun, and we greatly appreciate you bringing us to beautiful downtown Indianapolis for this panel. We will be back in one week with another episode, and until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.